Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and with me tonight is my regular panelist, freelance writer Julian Murdoch. Hello, Rob. How are you? Um, I'm adjusting. I'm, I'm coping. <laughs> You've got the reins, man. <laughs> Indeed, I, I'm so frightened. Um, <laughs> but never fear, uh, because with us tonight is our irregular panelist, Bruce Garrick. Hey, so what's this... Are we the official podcast of anything, or are we... See, are we... I, I don't know that. Like, can we be? The whole reason, like, <laughs> Troy can't be here all the... T- uh, can't be hosting the show anymore is because there's conflict of interest issues, and I don't know. Huh. So so th- we're, like, an unaffiliated podcast, or, like, we don't have a guild or something like that? I mean, what We've are we gonna gone do? rogue. We've gone well, rogue. Well, we're, 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 still, we're still calling... Um, Flash of Flash of Steel home for now, and Three Moves Ahead is is still Troy's podcast. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, wouldn't it be awkward if we're like slagging one of his employer's games? No, we should do that next week just for yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, we should we should look up who Evolve PR represents and then just start like you know shitting all over their games. Excellent. And then identify ourselves as the official podcast of Troy Goodfellows Flash of Steel dot com. Anyway, uh, tonight uh, we're going to be talking about online board gaming, um, how to do it right, and what it means for the future of the board gaming industry. Uh, To help us discuss that uh, is Robert Eng, Vice President of Game Table Online. Uh, Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I guess we should should start at the beginning. Um, So so tell us a bit about Game Table Online and um, how it came about. Uh, Game Table Online was an idea of my business partner and the president of Game Table Online, Joe Minton, and he and I went to college together and played a fair number of games in our off hours, Uh, and then I moved out to Hawaii and he stayed out in uh, Massachusetts where we went to school, and around 1998, 99, we we kept in touch over the years in that we kind of missed the board gaming nights that we used to have, but 5,000 miles between us was a challenge. And Joe had been working uh, with a a software programming studio called Cyberlore Studios to do traditional uh, computer games, but he wanted to look at a way to use technology to um, allow people to connect over the distance to play board games like we used to do, uh, but if we were 5,000 miles away, it would be as easy as doing it if we lived next door to each other. Right. Now, at the time you're, you're having this conversation, I mean, I mean, was there anything really that offered that service? Um, not that we knew of. I mean, honestly, I, uh, I remember when I uh, moved from Hawaii to Massachusetts to be part of Game Table Online, a friend of mine from high school said, Hey, Rob, I didn't know you liked playing online games. I'm all, I've never played one before, honestly. And uh, it's so it was kind of a new experience the first couple of months just doing research, seeing what types of games were out there. But I mean, you have the Yahoo and the Pogo games doing checkers and chess, which are actually board games and have been around for a while. So there have been options. It's just at the time there wasn't anything in the uh, hobby game niche. Right. Um, so so when did uh. When, so when did Game Table Online like officially get off the ground? Uh, we started building it in 2000, 2001. And because we pretty much bootstrapped the company out of uh, our meager pockets, uh, a lot of us worked 
worked uh, other actually everyone worked other jobs to make ends meet and we worked on game table in our off hours and so the initial development was a little bit slow but we opened up for public play in 2003 with five games okay and and how did you decide what those initial games were going to be because one of the interesting things about about game table online is that it seems to have really evolved over time um i think if i do i have this right culminating with a deal with wizards is that right yeah i think um i think we started developing the games for wizards in probably 2007 maybe 2006 and we adopted uh, they that was part of their gleamax online game initiative and then after that was abandoned by wizards of the coast um, but they had the game code and we were managing it for them. We decided to host the games that are, or that we came to agreement to host the games at our site. But initially our games were the people who answered our phone calls and emails. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me a bit about that early acquisitions process. I mean, um, how, how did you go about, you know, sort of adding to, adding to your uh, catalog and how did publishers react to you? Um, at first, it was a. I mean, we were trying to go with the small. I mean, I wasn't involved with the acquisition of games initially. That was mainly Joe, but uh, he kind of knocked on doors uh, or you know, virtual doors, as it were, um, looking for games. And we we tended to we actually got better traction with the small independent game um, publishers. Uh, I think our first games we had. Nuclear War from Flying Buffalo, Cosmic Wimp Out, a couple of games from Cheap Ass Games. So they weren't, they were games uh, probably slightly past their prime, but still had a good, decent cult following. And I think those particular publishers recognize that as this is a way to uh, prolong our life, stay relevant, stay visible, and possibly get some new conversions and let the old people, old fans who lost their friends to play with, give it another opportunity to reconnect with those. You, you make that sound depressing. Like, like there's a plague striking board gamers across the world. In a way there is, it's called growing up and having a family, right? I mean, that's, that seems to be the plague of the middle-aged board gamer. Yeah. Initially when we went public, it was definitely a strong, demographic group of people in their early to mid-30s who were just having their first kids and realizing, gee, I'm not going to be getting out the game anymore. And uh, so they kind of latched onto us. I mean, our crowd, I think, is a little bit younger nowadays, particularly since the Wizards of the Coast acquisitions. But uh, initially it was a lot of, oh, my kid's taking a nap. I can get a quick game in now. So. Mm. Well, you guys changed business models, too, didn't you? I mean, it used to be... I remember playing uh, Game Table Online, I think, right when it came out, because I saw that it was Tigris and Euphrates was, was available. And um, uh, I think you had to pay... You had to, like, pay a monthly fee or something like that? That's, yeah, we That's not the case had, anymore. Yeah, we initially had a subscription plan, and we gave everyone two weeks free to try out the games. And... Um, initially, we before the Wizards of the Coast games came, we found that uh, it's any I think with any online endeavor is getting that critical mass of attention. Where mm-hmm. if some I, I just kind of we were stuck in a rut where 
um, people would come online and say, hey, I like this service. I'm going to give it a try. But we didn't have enough bodies to kind of say, hey, right. you can connect with these people to play. It would be you come in there and it'd be one or two people in the lobby and they would sometimes frequently be staff members. Right. Um, so at some point around that time, we kind of realized, look, we need bodies more than we need subscribers. Mm-hmm. And then once that gets rolling, once we have that kind of ability to host uh, games, I think our initial goal was to have uh, on games going 12, 12 to 14 hours a day was our initial goal, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which was challenging. I think it's and now, I mean, we've definitely developed to the point where we have 24 hours a day gaming and even in our slow periods at five o'clock in the morning there's still activity going on there's still a couple play couple players playing access and allies it's interesting to hear you talk about this being a way for uh publishers to sort of extend the life of a franchise that might be either sort of you know on the decline or or sort of an old favorite that's not currently getting a lot of hype because it's sort of impossible to look at this world without talking about Brett Spielwell in Germany, right, which seems to have a very different model, and, and that's a very different board game market, the German market, right? And we we Americans sort of tend to follow them by about a year. But there, it seems like, and I've never quite understood it, it seems like they actually use the online version of the games as a marketing tool for a new game, a game that's sort of really in its stride. And that seems very different. Have you had those kinds of conversations with publishers with a with a new hot title out? Yeah, we have had some um, conversations in that direction where, I guess, uh, I mean, I we did a prototype project for a game publisher a few years back where it was supposed to be a handheld um, arena combat type game, an electronic, and you would put in a card type reader and you, you, you would choose your maneuvers and it would cross-index the results between you and your friend and you would play wired across each other at the, across the table. But we were also working on an on. We were developing the online component so that the same connection to play with the card reader face to face could plug into your computer through a USB, and you could play the same thing online. Uh, the fun thing about that is that we were developing the game faster than the hardware technology to play face to face, so we could test out the new routines and say, no, this kind of is, this character is particularly broken. And we could just run through tests really quickly. And so I think as a development tool, it's a great way to try out a game. It's uh, a great way to test play across the uh, the planet and uh, get that initial marketing. And I, I and I, I honestly am not familiar with uh, physical game production cost and everything, but. It seems like it's a great way to test it out before before going to the presses. So now the the uh, that's an interesting thing because I think that a lot of people who play games, you know, they may play it online, but they're more than happy to go ahead and buy the physical product if they really like the game. I think that's a kind of unique thing to board gamers where they kind of want to own the box and stuff. And then, yeah, we're we're like fetishists. We yes, want, exactly. We want, all the, we want the bling. Yep. No, I to- <laughs> totally agree, and I think that that. Oh God, I'm agreeing with. This is like a new era of uh, three moves ahead. <laughs> three moves ahead. Yeah, it's gosh. Like the, the counterpoint of uh, gaming yeah. here tonight, or yeah. usually. Yeah, exactly. So the the the, uh, the thing is that I I really don't think that publishers really have much to lose. Um, 
to you know by by making their games available for play like that. Um, so that I mean, Julian really pointed out a, an interesting uh, sort of contrast between the, the, the approach the publishers take from the, across the the two sort of hobbies, the American hobby and the and the German hobby. But um, I I guess I'm not really sure what I mean. I I don't even know what Brett Spielwelt's business model is because everything is free. We've we've asked actually out of just like curiosity and never gotten really much of an answer. Well, I believe I believe the games are the publishers don't have a uh, pay for it, and that Brett Spielwelt or the programmers behind it use it as a platform to showcase their their talents. Hmm. Uh, wow. I don't know that for a fact. Talk I mean, about I, soft. Yeah, really. I think the model that you guys have settled on, though, really makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think you certainly would have a hard time going with the Magic the Gathering online route where you're charging the same price that you pay for the physical game, right? I think because we board gamers are sort of fetishists, you know, we we value the physical thing more than just the intellectual property behind it. Um, but by the same token, the idea of spending, I don't know what it was, $5 to get my copy of 1960 online mm-hmm. I, and, and knowing that I would be able to play that essentially forever because I had bought it just like I had bought my physical copy of the game. Right. That that was like a no brainer. I mean, it w- there was no hesitation in my mind because that's just like buying a game to play on my iPad or anything else. Well, the five dollars is like a is like less than I pay for coffee every morning, so it's just <laughs> I mean, it's like basically free as far as I'm concerned. So, but um, yeah, I mean, I think a big part of it is um, I, I I don't only only think about the economics as a gamer myself, but it's also I do find the face-to-face gaming a little more, as a general rule, more, what's the word, uh, rewarding of an experience, Uh, where there's this interaction, a little time to think. You can see the hamster wheel uh, wheel rolling across on your opponent, and the online uh, sometimes can lack that a little. But there are pluses also where the game sets up incredibly fast because um, I tried to play Axis and Allies Pacific once. It took us an hour to set it up. Where yeah, an online, really have an hour to do anything. So yeah, yeah. I, where an online computer, we we say, hey Julian, hey Bruce, hey Robert, let's let's get together and play Axis and Allies Pacific, and it's a minute, maybe tops to boot up, yeah. and we're we're playing the game. So that already has chopped uh, increased our play time right off the get-go yeah no i I agree go ahead go ahead sorry i i I think that that to me is the sweet spot for this kind of thing i mean it's gotten to the point where between the the games that you guys have some of the games that brett spiel well games that are really complicated to set up i'd i'd rather play in this kind of situation because i like big meaty games but i hate record keeping right i there's a reason i didn't become an accountant for a living and uh you know as much as i love a game like 1960 it takes 30 minutes to put all the freaking pieces on the board no or... it doesn't <laughs> sure it get does. out that's what? just whatever it, it takes does. No, it doesn't. It, it that's because you're like, do you want a coke? Do you want a beer? <laughs> Whatever. You know, what do you want to put? What music do you want to listen to? Do Just figuring out where yeah. all the freaking state flags go so that they're all in all the little right states and everything. I mean, come on. Look, and last time, and last time Julian and I played, I mean, we, we played 1960, and it, it was like that election night. You know, we're, we're waiting for the returns to come in. You know, like with our scratch tabs. 
you know, trying to figure out who the hell just won this game. I was about to say, and then there's the second part of it, which is keeping track of what's going on in the game, right? And making sure that you haven't forgotten something key, like putting your rest cubes in the bin, right? And having that kind of rules enforcement for a game that has a lot going on makes the game far more playable. It really does. When you guys play chess, do you check and make sure that the knight really moves that way? That (laughs) way? Come on, just I mean, yes, but so no. I mean, so so you remember the uh, you remember the the uh, the Washington overwintering rules from We the People by heart every time you pick it up. I don't play We the People. <laughs> I don't have time to play backgammon. Now there's a game you have to read. No, but my point is simply that there are uh, there's a class of complex strategic war games that require record keeping and setup. That's a pain in the ass and. Well, it's it's not just the it's not just the it's not just the record keeping and setup, but it's also the the degree of engagement with game. Just just to like to use a 1960s as an example again, there were a lot of times where I was sort of you know flying by feel. You know, like I had a sense for what was going on in the game, who was who was really winning and by how much. But a lot of times, I didn't I didn't want to be that guy who would stop the game and add everything up and figure out exactly what the next move was. So right. so a lot of times I would just say, well, okay, this seems like it's the wise move right now. And then two minutes later, I'd do some math in my head and realized, oh well, I just wasted that round. Well, that's part of the game, right? Uh, I, I mean, have, having stuff. No, but come on. I mean, look. I mean, if you have <laughs> if you have a game keeping track for you, I mean, this, here's a perfect example. Perfect example. Is, is Computer Titan, okay? That t- half of that game is the fact that you have to be able to keep track of stuff and keep track of probabilities in your head. And so, not spill your stacks. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. Yeah, but yeah, Don't I play mean, drunk. Yeah, yeah exactly. The half. <laughs> yeah, and don't play angry. So, I mean, the, the point is that, you know, a lot of this stuff, I, I don't really agree with having the computer, like, display stuff. I mean, th- that's, that's part of the game, is having to do math in your head and having to keep track of things. And, and if you can't do that, then tough, right? I mean... It, otherwise, you'd have, you know, everybody would have a calculator in front of them and have things written down and say, okay, I'm not making my move until I figure out what everybody's got. I mean, that, that you can't do that. Well, we had that debate actually earlier on where initially our philosophy was no, we didn't want the computer giving its score tally. Right. And I think it was sometime uh, when we were, I, I think, uh, a conversation with Reiner Knizia because I was showing him one of our uh, not Tigris and Euphrates but Vampire, one of his uh, like out of print card games, mm-hmm. and we didn't have the score on there. And he asked about that, and I said that was an intentional thing that we wanted it to simulate the physical or the experience that we would have around the table, where if someone was adding up the points, everyone else would harass them. Uh, but he kind of brought up it's just like the technology is there to to ignore it is almost silly at, uh, to an extent. So, we've so is he releasing been... a, a respa- an expansion to his game with a whole bunch of scorekeeping uh, uh, tools? Uh, yeah, so I mean, in Tigers and Euphrates, you definitely you see your score, but you don't see everyone else's score. So we still keep that kind of element and, there. And you're not supposed to, because you have shields, right? I mean, it's a, a, like uh, screens to keep you from doing that. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a particular part of the game design. Yes, uh, but I forgot there was some iPad game that I was board game that I was trying where, uh, oh, it was raw, and it gave you the number of tiles left, and it was just like you're killing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Carcassonne, yeah. the Carcassonne iPad version does the same thing where you can tap on a little button and it shows you what's left. 
Like like anybody yeah. actually has memorized the entire right. distribution of Carcassonne tiles. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we kind of we don't go quite that far. Some of the games, uh, like Tigers and Euphrates, we have a to simulate the tile bag and the feel of how many tiles are left. We have a sound thing, so it's noisier when there's more in there and it gets quieter. That's clever. So we do try. We're trying to bridge that kind of using the technology, but also trying to keep the mystery of the, the unknown in the game involved too. So Right. And and the other end of the spectrum is the numerous systems out there for playing essentially unaided board games. Uh, you know, and they're they're all sort of whether it's, you know, the you know, virtual advanced squad leader and all of the various games you can load into that. Uh, <laughs> or I mean there's a version of Agricola that you can play online that does no rules enforcement at all. And that actually becomes, I find more complicated than playing in the real world because now are you not only having to deal with all the record keeping and setup you're dealing with an interface which uh let's face it i've i've misclicked plenty of games into oblivion whether it's on game <laughs> table or breathfield or whatever because right. we're human beings and you can't say you don't ever accidentally say oh i didn't really mean to play that card after it hits the table in the real right. world i mean generally when you play a card you pick the one that you wanted to play but it's real easy to click on the wrong card or mm-hmm. to click on the wrong unit or something like that. Right. I mean, yeah, some of our games we kind of put in a prompt. Uh, <laughs> like we're trying to, we're working on adding a confirmation of, in Tigris and Euphrates of uh, starting a conflict. So we understand that some moves, it's just like we we are kind of crossing some lines, but we, we do make conscious thought about how much do we want to use the technology and how much do we want to obscure it and make it as close to a physical game experience as possible. Right. Now, the, before we get off the subject of, you know, we were talking about Brett Spielvelt's model and your guys' model, there's also the, the model of, like, Days of Wonder, where you buy the physical game and that allows you to play online. Uh, I, I, what do you think of that model? Well, I don't... I, I mean, I haven't been following Days of Wonder too close, but I think they changed their model about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow, I mean, that, wow, was, their, that was their original model where if you bought the game, you got a coupon code and that gave mm-hmm. you X amount of play or X amount of dollars to convert okay. to this. Um, I think they've changed to a more um, activation type model similar to what we have now. I guess we, we talked about our old subscription model, but what we to bring your listeners up to date is that we've got a what was called, we call a freemium model where we give away the ability to play against the computers for free so you can try out the technology. See Not the all the games, though. I'm sorry? Not 1960 games, is, the one, uh, is our one ex- premium yeah. game exception. And, um, and get, we believe that's where the value in the experience as a gamer is, is playing another human versus another computer. Or a computer, I should say. Um, but I think Days of Wonder has moved to a... Um, activation type system where you have to you either get if you want to play the 1910 version that's an additional uh activation purchase i I think i think gamers are fine with that in general i mean it's nice that you're able to you know go get a free coupon and with a copy of your game but um you know what they're doing like with memoir 44 i mean Mm -hmm. the memoir 44 implementation is is really deep i mean it's very well done 
And I think most people would be fine spending, I don't know, five bucks or something like that or 10 bucks to own that game. I think the bad call would be to say to join the Days of Wonder game system, you have to pay $15 a month because I think people rebel against that pretty quickly. Yeah, uh, yeah somewhat. I mean, we definitely felt that it was um, it was a hard sell for us. And it's a kind of a challenge though i mean i think it it, it depends on your price point we initially when we had the subscription price it was about four or five dollars a month for unlimited play all the game titles granted we didn't have the popular wizards games at that time but i would i would get people like saying uh, saying how can you charge that much and it's just like look if you don't feel like it's that value to don't play don't pay it but i said honestly it comes down to the, about the price of a grilled cheese sandwich at a diner <laughs> yeah, and but I there's said, a diff- there's a perception issue though. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, and for me, I always kind of say, look, it's it's your personal value, whether but, you. But got- the the problem is, I think it, it comes back to your target market, right? The, precisely the same guy. I mean, I'll use myself as the example, right? Some guy who's got two kids, who's you know in his forties, who's a big board gamer. The likelihood that I'll go two months without being able to get a game in, and then have a week where I want to play a whole bunch. That's that's reality. You know, it it's it's a struggle for me to get one day a week when I can do anything, much less a string of days. So so any kind of monthly subscription, you run into that gym membership thing where if you don't go for a month, you just feel like you blew your money. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we do have a, I don't know if you noticed, we have a we have a play by email, which is kind of uh, an a, it's a poor title for it. But it's an asynchronous play where for games. Like, let's say we were all part of an Axis and Allies game, but we all kept different schedules. We could take our turn and go back to the game and play at each of our turns during our coffee breaks during the day. But yeah. it would also allow us, uh, with our functionalities, that if we happened to be all online at the same time, we would play in real time. So we could do an evening session and say, look, i got to go take care of the kids. I'm going to take my turn later on. Yeah. So that we do have as a subscription type service right now. So uh, and that seems to be getting a little traction now too. So well, you subscribe to the ability to play by email. I don't understand. Yes, yeah, yeah. We also you, we also have like if you want to just do one or two games, you can. It's it we you you can do individual game sessions, also. But for the person who wants the freak who's playing more than ten or fifteen of these games per month, it makes sense just to get the subscription. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's, so we that's, offer it both ways on that yeah. issue, on that um, on it. Yeah. And now you've also got it set up <laughs> where people can play games they don't own by paying a, a very small amount to sit down in a little tournament, right? Yeah, that uh, that wasn't. I guess that was a um, a collateral benefit of the tournament play that uh, we didn't expect it to be. But we said, hey, this is a, and we started marketing it that way. Is like. This is an inexpensive way to try out the game against another player. And um, so. so one question, you know, our discussion of, of Days of Wonder may, makes me ask, um, you know, what, what, what's, what's the future of this kind of, of, this kind of service? Um, D- Days of Wonder can start its own service because it's got a really deep library of games. There's a lot of stuff well, that they can they, bring online. They own the IP, right? Game Table Online doesn't own the IP to these games. Right. right. Um, so I guess like now you just you just made this this deal with with Wizards. Why does a publisher like Wizards want to deal with you? Why, why rather than start their own service? Well, actually, Wizards actually was about to start their own service, and um, 
part of the and I I can't say why um, I'm I'm not entirely privy to why they abandon it, but it's I can guess that knowing from my day to day experience, it takes a, a fair amount of customer support, um, and it's a twenty four seven kind of thing and they didn't want to have to deal with the bandwidth and it's I think they maybe kind of set up their their or after they retooled and pulled away from the Gleam Axis like, look, we want to be a board game publisher. We we see value in an online game application, but we don't that's not us. We don't want to take the time to monetize it. We don't want to take the time to manage it. We don't want to take time to add more content per se. And they kind of, I think, would rather, uh, they just kind of, and perhaps they'll change their mind later. But uh, at this time, they, I think they just are happy to let us monetize it, give them royalties for it, and not have to deal with it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I mean, you have to have, you have to have all the infrastructure to support that, right? I mean, you have to have the, uh, you know, the, the staff to develop the games and to support them and the servers and all the hardware and all the support for that. So, no, I understand why, why a publisher would, would want someone else to sort of offer, just like, you know, game uh, uh, game uh, publishers, especially indies. You know, they they outsource their uh, their uh, whatever their retail, their online retail to to Steam or to some you know online mm-hmm. uh, payment provider. I mean, that that makes perfect sense to me. I I, I, mean, I don't. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say, and and each of our publish, I guess Wizards, of course, is uh, has a slightly different arrangement from most of our other publishers, because. Uh, when we were doing the Gleamax um, program for them and programming these games initially, uh, we we did it as a contract developer, so they actually own the code in these cases. So where, so, uh, go ahead, keep going. Finish. Where, I, I, where most of our other games, we own the code and have a license agreement. In this one, we just have a license agreement to use to take care of their code for them, essentially. So here's the thing that I really I kind of wanted to get into because <clears throat> the whole business model and and uh, sort of uh, you know monetary business considerations of, of all these things we've we've talked about a little bit but I want to talk a little bit more about like a what makes a good implementation of a board game online what you guys think does and uh, you know how hard that is to achieve and and what you think of some of the stuff that's out there. Um, I mean. One of the guiding philosophies we have ha- we have started with is that we really wanted to make the games look and play like they were in person and not add so many bells and whistles. And I was just talking with someone this weekend at a game convention about it. It's just like we had a game and we add, uh, we it's up. It's uh, called Dogfight and it's a simple board game by Bucephalus Games. And we added the sound effect, and it's like fighter pilot game, and we added sound effects of planes zooming by. And the first time you hear it, it's like, ooh, that's kind of fun and, and amusing. But by the third time you've heard the plane zooming by, it's kind of annoying. Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes with um, dice rolling animation. It's just like the first time you see it, it's like, cool. But on the, but uh, online games seem to have a kind of speed component where you're just like, I want to click it. I want... The results, and I want to take right. my turn. And uh, if you're if you spend too much time with the bells and whistles, which I think are um, common in in computer games, is that it's the board it detracts from the board game experience. 
Mm-hmm. So um, the other thing that we've really we've really tried to stick to is making the games look and play like they do in the real game. So using the original artwork and the original rules. So as as much as possible. Game again. The art is very important. I think. Oh that, yes. That, that uh, I mean, that's part of being a, a, a game fetishist and a board game. Exactly, gamer. exactly. You, you really I mean, want to, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I, it works both ways where, A, it helps if they get used to seeing the product on our online and they go to the store, they say, hey, I've played this before. And vice versa, if they've played the game in real life, they say, hey, this looks and, and smells like the game uh, that I play in the board. And it, it, right, I but, think but let's be cool. realistic. Let's be honest. Nobody's going to the store. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> but um i i mean like tigers and euphrates we actually we we had an agreement with reiner knizia to do the game but he didn't own the artwork for the german version so we actually went ahead and we had a separate license agreement with uh doris uh, mathis who did the artwork mm-hmm. to to get the addition the real artwork for the uh, german version of the game so we yeah. definitely believe that's a really strong uh component well, so, so Bruce's dark prediction that um, nobody's going to the store, uh, it, it does make me ask. Um, well, I'm just saying they're buying it online. Well, I mean, that, that's, the que- that's, that's my question. Is, is the relationship truly symbi- uh, symbiotic? Is it going to stay that way? Is there, does something like Game Table Online, does it drive sales of board games? Can it, can it help these publishers move copies out of hobby shops? Or is it no, is it cannibalizing a bit? Is it no, it can have it can help them go online and buy it at the publishers, or go through some online retail that will discount it. No, I, I see. This is spoken like a guy who doesn't have a friendly local game store next to them. I mean, I, don't. I, I think it actually does. I mean, I have taught on 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 a conservative count, I have taught a dozen people to play 1960 on okay. Game People Online. Okay, right? now, and I and I did that mostly by either I had. Um, from the dawn of time when I had done some review, uh, you guys had given me a bunch of coins. So I had a bunch of coins and I bought copies of the game for a whole bunch of people. Right. Mm-hmm. And so anytime I was sitting around board, I would say, Oh, okay, Corey, I'll teach you how to play 1960 and spend my 30 coins or whatever it was, which is, you know, my $3 or $5 and, and buy a copy for a friend and walk them through how to play the game. And again, because it does rules enforcement for you, it's much easier to learn than it is in person, I think. And I, I, I'm absolutely positive I have personally sold five copies of this game in physical, friendly, local game store version because of that. So I think the online thing definitely encourages brick-and-mortar sales. And yes, I'm sure quite a few people like Bruce don't actually bother to go to their local game store. It's and, not and, bothering. And I can't. I, I can't. I can't go to any physical establishment that is open during business hours unless I've been up all night. Yeah. Well, but okay. But you're not. But you're abnormal. We've established this in many, many ways. But that the problem is that that's how I think of the world. So the idea of going to <laughs> the idea of going to the dry cleaner is something that I can only do next week when I'm going to be, you know, awake at noon and basically. So this you know, is your. This is how you're going to get rich: internet dry cleaning. Yes, exactly. <laughs> virtual clothing. <laughs> so, um, if only you could be a doctor in the virtual world. Yes, exactly. I got to monetize that somehow. Well, we did do a survey of our users in 2007, and it wasn't like thousands of uh, respondents, 
But uh, it was an interesting fa- uh, result that we got is that of the respondents, uh, roughly people, when they were introduced to a game on our site, averaged about 12% would go on to buy the game in a f- uh, physical product. How, of how course. do you know that? I'm sorry? How a do survey. you know that? A they, survey. Yeah, so, so they not... told you that. See, that's, I don't believe any of this stuff. Like, if you had a track trip... <laughs> and I, I'd be and shocked I, if you did, Bruce. <laughs> I, I don't. I just bribe them to answer this way. all sorts of crazy things. I don't know. I don't, I'm sorry. I'm not, like, questioning you. I'm just saying that, that all this, like, survey data, I just, I just find, like, somebody filled out a card and said, you know, oh, I... <laughs> <laughs> I did this thing. Well, who knows? I mean, I said in survey. It's like those old Nielsen booklets where people claim to watch like way more PBS than yes, they actually exactly, did. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, of course, I buy the actual. Of course, I visit my hobby shop. Right. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah, I mean, it's, it very well could be. I mean, I know that the the uh, the topic of technology and delivery is key to the music industry to some extent. Where I know I stopped buying CDs and I. Get, I pay a subscription for streaming music, and since then I haven't really bought any CDs. And whereas, whereas for me, I actually I gave up on the streaming music stuff, and now I just spend way more than I ever spent on CDs. I just spend it all at Amazon and iTunes. Mm-hmm. But it's it, it, but it's similarly kind of it's a new format of delivery right. of the experience. And you and I can you and I get to both coexist with very different you know proprietary purchasing. Uh, behaviors, right? We we have our way of doing things, and yet because of the internet, we can do it the way we want to. And the actual intellectual property owner made some money either way. Mm-hmm. You know something. So we brought up earlier in the show, and I, you know, I never, I didn't get to follow up, but okay. you mentioned that there was a, there was a time there where you had people trying to find games, and it was empty lobbies. And how did you how did you end how did you break that cycle in the first place? Because we I've played first- a lot of multiplayer games where if there's no community, that's the death knell yes. because nobody's going to stick around. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we had a few hardcore people who were really devoted to us, and um, we we tried to keep them happy as long as we could. And then at a certain point, we uh, well, initially we also with the subscription model, we we were very adamantly no advertising. And then we kind of said, look, we need bodies. So we we actually for a while went free entirely, till we built up the community to a size where we were like, all right, we're we've got something a community to offer, and that when you pay some activation or subscription, there is a community to receive you. Um, and so we were a couple of years we went free actually, and we just took the losses on it and tried to st- started doing advertising to um, help keep our overhead. So what's so what's next for game table? I mean, obviously, as gamers, we just want more games, right? That's all we want. We just want like you to have the entire library of everything we've ever wanted to play well, tomorrow. I mean, so so how do you build? How do you build on this? How do you keep bringing in games that both attract new players and that you can monetize so that you guys can stay in business? What's the what's the growth pattern here? Not just for you, because as nice as you are, I don't care that much about you. How about about me for the gamer? Like, what, what, how do I get to keep, uh, you know, yeah, we experiencing totally the saucy that. goodness, you know? I mean, I was joking with someone this weekend at a game convention. I said, look, I work cheap, but my programmers don't. Um, and, uh, but trying to, we're trying to find a, good way to 
cost-effectively provide that new game content, both for the publishers, both for the programmers, and, and, and not bankrupt ourselves. So it's kind of finding that we're trying to find some sort of system, and we're in the process of putting that together, hopefully later this year, where um, increase our volume uh, number of game offerings per year. And uh, do you, do and, you have anything announced? I mean, do you have anything in the queue that that you know? It's um, we're not we're not asking you to divulge state secrets, but uh, well, um, we've actually, and it's not so much as just some deep secrets, but more we've avoided announcing games for a few years too far in advance, just because shit happens and people get their hopes up and then yeah, you get in trouble was, and everybody's it, like you it, promised me i was gonna get to play magic yeah. yeah where i spend so much time giving updates on it and uh so we and, and we also you lose promotional steam if you pop the so, question so you're you're not going to tell us anything oh, Art. that's uh, what, what you say <laughs> uh, yes, tell you i guess like i said uh, the latest projects we're kind of tweaking some old games similar to what we did with access and allies revised and then adding Axis and Allies 1942 is we're adding a new map, the the alternate map for Tigers and Euphrates. Uh, bringing on, we're trying to work on the public domain games just because we think we can crank it. If we can get one or two card games, we can start cranking out a few more of those. Uh, we're looking at the. I I actually was just reviewing the rules yesterday uh, for the new Battlecry version to see if we want to uh, update to the new version of that. Um, but, uh, we're kind of waiting to unleash this new, new development program before we start, uh, uh, uh looking for actively for licenses right now. So, so one, one thing that I, uh, that I haven't gotten into, and of course, as the show's winding down, I start having all these questions that I want to ask. Um, two next week or something. <laughs> Do you? I mean, what's the what's the collaborative process here in bringing one of these games over from the cardboard side to the digital side? Um, are you guys doing the development of these conversions? Do you how how much do you consult with the designers? Uh, what goes into what goes into the translation process? Um, we definitely are. Uh, I I mean, I think as we were talking about Wizards of the Coast and the Gleamax games, it was kind of like, look, you guys take care of it. This is your specialty. You do it. So I think it's kind. Of, there hasn't been too much of um, participation. We 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 definitely would love it, and uh, we do kind of give the updates, prototypes. When we go into alpha testing, we'll have a scheduled um, internal testing with the designer if they're interested, or the publisher if they're interested. Um, honestly, as a general, most of them aren't too too involved at that point. They just kind of want to be able to link to it, and uh, but we would love to have it um, become more prominent in, uh, in their um, have them be a prominent role. But we really kind of just take the physical game and uh, really adapt, uh, bring it to the online. I, I guess I remember being part of our doing the design document for New England. And we were looking at the board and had it set up on the table, and we're kind of like, all right, how can we do the interface? And I kind of looked up, and I said, does somebody have a digital camera? And I said, and they said, sure. And we, so we took a picture of the board thing, thing and then I, with a little draw thing and, or Photoshop, just kind of drew in the lines of, like, 
all right, this is what we want to do, and took the photo as our kind of our layout, our initial layout design, and kind of played around with it to work within the computer. Um, that sounds that sounds like a delightfully organic process, right? It was. Like I mean, set was, up the game and take a picture. You know. Yeah, I mean, we were actually kind of we were talking about it and drawing sketches on the computer, and then and we I said let's just pull out the physical game and see how it looks, and then we would we would just kind of move the pieces around and just kind of stood over the table, took a picture of it, and it actually went into the design document. This picture, and and there was a little, and then we just did a kind of black and white diagram to kind of. Uh, break down the components into it. So uh, we are we we come from it as a despite having computer programmers, we definitely come at it as board gamers, though, which I think gives us a certain uh, um, uh, vision uh, that's I think the average user can relate to. Right. Well, I mean, you're you're clearly not like Robert Eng corporate tool. I mean, you're clearly like one of us. So I kind of have to. And we have like five minutes left, so I have to ask, what are you playing? Not just like online, but like like what is what do you look at in the board game world and say, gosh, man, I wish I could play that at Game Table Online, or maybe it's like I am playing this on Game Table Online and it's sucking my life away, or <laughs> on somebody else's service. I mean, you're clearly a devotee and you're, you know, one of us, you know, cue the music. Uh, so so what are you playing that, that gets you excited and how do you see that working online? Online? Uh, I'm a big Blood Bowl fan. And they went. Uh, they did a, their online game uh, last year or the year before, and uh, yeah, we we talked about yeah, it. We did a show on that here. Yeah, oh, I'll have to look that one up there. I mean, my biggest problem with that was it's and that what we kind of encountered initially is that the Blood Bowl game it takes over your computer and that's what you're doing. Yeah. Whereas our games, I mean, I play them and I'm multitasking. I'm bookkeeping while I'm playing. Uh, Lord of the Fries, and I can do it during the day, and I like that. Uh, I like the, and we initially, when we came up with Game Table Online, we were, my partner Joe is from the software studio direction, and he was like, oh, we have to take over the whole screen and immerse the user entirely in it. And we actually found that a lot of the users were more like me, where it was just like, I want to be multitasking, I want to be chatting with someone else while I'm playing and uh wasn't so. that kind of integral to the board game experience too? I mean it, it, you don't multi you aren't, you multitasking aren't, if you're not drinking a beer and having a side conversation you're not actually playing a game. Well right, but you're also not <laughs> they're also not, like apart from the space, right? You know, you're you're always sort of situated among friends, you know, in your house or in their house. It's it's not like it's not like computer gaming where it's it's all about immersion. Mhm. Yeah, so uh that's kind of um, I mean, I dabble. I mean, people. I use the same username at Game Table Online that I use at Brett's Feel Wealth, and people say, "Aren't you a trader?" It's like, no, I'm not. I'm doing research. Right. <laughs> you don't have that license. That's the problem. <laughs> I mean, I I play uh, I play online poker. I I always I always am bold about it. I'll I'll use my my the same username I use at Game Table Online, and I just kind of um, we believe that there's enough out there for multiple sites. I remember a few years back when I think Settlers of Catan came to the internet, a licensed version. Somebody was like saying, oh, aren't you concerned about the competition that's going to put you out of business? It's just like, well, we never had that, Settlers. But also, I really, at at least at that time, I was kind of thinking, getting people to the point of accepting 
some sort of payment to play an online version of a board game if they can if settlers of Catan online makes people more willing to do that that helps me indirectly yeah well, sure i mean i have an online game yeah <laughs> <laughs> So, I, it's, not, I mean, it's not so it, it trading an online game. Trading any games where you any game where you have to trade automatically sucks. It's just online. not as good online. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But 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 I think that I mean I certainly I feel like the iPhone and the iPad have really helped that. I mean I play so many board games on my iPad now it's ridiculous and often with another person across a table. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think all of those things have to be good. What games? What are you talking about? You've got to be kidding me. Samurai, Raw, Small World, Settlers, uh, Niroshima Hex, which is surprisingly good. I mean, Niroshima Hex on the iPhone. It's also on the iPad. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I have can a question. Play Raw on the iPhone? Yes, you can. Really? Okay. <coughs> check it out. Okay. Or actually, I do. I don't know that for a fact. I think you can. But um, I have a question for you, the, the, you as panelists that something you brought up inferentially during your conversation is uh, yeah. you were talking about game implementations that don't enforce the rules and are more like a skeletal type thing. And that's something that we've been kind of hemming and hawing about. How do you guys as gamers feel about it? Because on the one hand, we kind of like it. It's like that's one way of us getting every game under the sun possibly but and reducing our development time. But we also kind of... as game table online and our standards are now it's just like we kind of look at it it's just like is that really the game i have enough problems breaking apart uh, disagreements when we do enforce the rules let alone <laughs> we, let, we open it all up to everyone's uh, whims and interpretations of the rules too yeah i don't i don't have any I, I don't see any point to that because i mean it's already been done i mean vassal basically anybody can make any game and i've played plenty of games on vassal um where you know the the the, um, the obstacle to the to the game to playing the game is actually trying to get the whole thing you know to 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 implement for you and the opponent to implement the rules yourselves. I mean, I, yeah. If you were if you were to do that, I can't imagine that I would want. I mean, it would better be free. It better be sold. <laughs> <laughs> they better be paying you in beer. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, I mean, I really don't. I don't find any value in that. In, in, and and in, I and and frankly, it gets it gets so complicated. I mean, I have again, I played plenty of Squad Leader and Vassal, and we're picking like the world's most complicated and also best game as the right. as the the edge At case there. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but I mean, I there are definitely some games where the rules are simple enough that you could get away with it. I would love say an online version of Ogre. They did very minimal rules enforcement. Like if it could just snap the chits to the right place and keep me from moving too much, I can handle looking this stuff up on the table. But right? I don't think you I'm want Vassal is. But I mean, what I'm saying is a Vassal. I'm not just saying Vassal is now no long. Vassal is no longer V A S L, right? It's V A S S A L, which is right. basically a system for playing any game. Yes. Right? So yes, and you can play Ogre in Vassal. Absolutely. Exactly. Right. So that's why. But, but the sure. matchmaking is terrible, and actually getting yeah. it work. The beauty of Game Table Online, not to fully our our guest, is that you go, you make your account, and maybe you pay a few dollars for something or you don't, right. and then you click on something and you're playing a game. With Vassal, it's like download this, download that, put this in the right place, make sure you got the right permissions. I agree with you. Find a I lobby. I mean, by the time you're done with all that, I, it's like eleven o'clock and I'm ready for bed. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Well, but the only people I'm going to play Vassal with are people that I already know. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, but 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 it's it's useful, right? I mean, I'm like, hey, dude, you know, this is like the one time in the last ten years that we've both had like two hours free at the same time. Uh, you know, you want to play like 1960, and so we did, uh, and it worked. But now, now apparently, I can play it on. Uh, you know, on Game Table Online with some and, like and random play person it in, in, in and Indonesia, you can play so. it in like 22 minutes. Right? <laughs> is that right? Is it does it play fast? Oh, oh. my god! Because again, because of the rules enforcement, nobody has to drag anything anywhere. Uh-huh. It's just click, 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 and all the cards shuffle out automatically. And really, yeah, Holy yeah. I've played this? my 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 record is I've played seven games of 1960 in an evening. Really? Good God! Are you serious? Totally I mean, serious. pretty much, I would say on the average, our I'm games say that after the podcast, I'm they they have they about have the time play time. I mean, I don't know if you have you ever played Dominion in face to face. Dominion. Oh the, yeah, not Dominion, the card game. Card the card game. game. Yeah, I don't like that game. Whatever. Yeah, because yeah, you have no taste. It takes yeah, about what, 30, 40 minutes to play. Yeah, at best, and it takes about it 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah, 10, 15 minutes tops. Yeah, and something like something with actual lots of pieces to move around, like Puerto Rico is a 90-minute game in person and a 30-minute yeah. game online. Same right. thing with the Ticket to Ride. I mean, the drawing of the cards, you don't have to shuffle. And, and humans do a crappy job shuffling in uh, comparison to the computer. But the same thing with Ticket to Ride. It's yeah. a 45-minute to an hour game, and you can probably play in 15, 20 minutes probably. Yeah. Oh, yeah, th- seven or eight minutes. I used to play – I used to be an ad- I used to be addicted to Ticket to Ride when I was on Meta- when I was in. Oh Meta- yeah, especially if you're only playing two players, yeah. it's just like back oh, yeah. and forth. It's bam, bam, bam. Cards flying around. It's, and it's just like online poker too, right? And that's actually why I don't like online poker because poker's not about the game; it's about people anyway, right? You, you play a game of online poker and you can play, I don't know what, a hundred hands an hour or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna check out this uh, this. It, it, I can really play that fast because if if I can play 1960 that fast, I'm gonna play try to play oh, a game in 1960 when we're it's, done. It's ridiculously fast. Yes. Okay. Especially if you already know the cards and you're not reading every card, right, forget right, it. Right, it's right, right. so fast. Interesting. All right. All right. And I think on that note, uh, we will leave leave it off there. Uh, Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. Uh, anytime, um, as you said, I'm. I'm one of the. Uh, I'm not one of the corporate mugs there. So uh, if it comes just time to shoot shit about games, uh, give me a buzz. No, no, no. You're you're entrenched. Robert Ang, corporate tool. That's, that's <laughs> your new card right there. I got. Uh, that sounds like a new title there. I, I don't always feel comfortable <laughs> with a vice president. So corporate tool sounds a little more. Uh, when 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 game table grow, grows a little bit, you'll you'll fit right into that into that title. You'll grow into it. Perfect. All right. All right, well, and. Thanks, uh, yeah, give us a heads up the next time something exciting is uh, about to drop, and maybe we will. Uh... Yeah, I'll just say, uh, yeah, this uh, this uh, summer I think there's going to be a big uh, big bomb coming out in the online game world, and we're part of it. So uh, yeah, this summer keep an eye out there. If it's a big one, it's it's, it's there's a I I hear two big projects out there, and we're one of them. So um, it should Can't be an wait. exciting year in 2001. All right, very cool. cool. All right, and. Uh... Bruce, Julian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Good night, everybody.